so what they're doing is like they're starting out with this deceptive behavior of if we can just hold back and hide the fact we're going to try to sell them something if we can maybe talk around exactly what we're selling then it gives us a better shot at getting the sale and i always say like is your goal to obtain or sustain my philosophy is you don't want a quick sale because a quick sale will have fallout right people who will cancel they'll leave you bad reviews they won't use you again etc you really want a lifetime value of a client which means you didn't just obtain the sale through some covert cool way of getting them to sign on the dotted line but you actually built a relationship Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now that was Dan Crum. Dan is the author of the book titled The CIA Method, about the best practices in hiring and recruiting for sales. He's also the creator of the CIA Top Secret Sales Method. Now you might be wondering where the CIA reference comes from. Well, Dan has had one of the most interesting journeys into sales. He was a polygraph examiner, lie detector examiner, and special investigator for the CIA. He administered lie detector tests to the people the agency was considering hiring. And from his experiences, Dan learned that the key to effective hiring is to have a process that minimizes the subjectivity that's inherent in making critical hiring decisions. So among the topics we dig into is why Dan advocates that portions of the hiring process should be blind, names removed from resumes, and so on. We also dive into some interesting ideas about verification of what you hear during interviews, and also an interesting tip about why you should make audio and video recordings of all the interviews you do. Now, we're going to get into this and much, much more about hiring. But before we get to Dan, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback but how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Dan Crum, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So where have you been hanging out during this whole pandemic? I live in Fairfax, Virginia. Yep. Um, every, every time I travel, which hasn't been much recently, I tell people I live in D.C. because it's simpler <laughs> it's to say easier, that right? than to say Virginia, right? Because yeah. I'm about 20 minutes outside the city. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, Fairfax County is right there. Just I consider it all part of DC too. I'm sure people who live in Virginia don't like that, but whatever. Um, yep. <laughs> so you have a couple dogs. So tell us about your dogs. I have uh, two Shiba Inus, and I probably will get this imperfect, but um, I believe they're one of the oldest, if not one of the oldest dog breed in the world. They're from Japan. Mm -hmm. They look like foxes. Uh, the one is yeah. actually very orange in color, just like a fox. Wow. Um, we actually call him Marty McFox. It's a play on Marty McFly from Back right, to the Future. Right, but, right. Yep. And the other one uh, is pure white, so we call her Elsa, like the Snow Queen from Frozen. Uh, Frozen. Yep. Wow. Look at that. I mean, so are they like at the same age or something? Uh, Marty is, I think, seven and Elsa is four, maybe okay. almost five. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we could hear them earlier before we started recording. I just. <laughs> I was, they may make an appearance. You'll see. They make an appearance and that's fine. That's why I tell people, is, you know, the shows, especially during the pandemic, it's not about perfection. You know, if real life intrudes, then so be it. Real life intrudes. Uh, so right. speaking about real life, you. You used to work for the CIA as a polygraph examiner. So that's Correct. pretty fascinating. How'd you get into that? Um, so to rewind a little bit, 
uh, back in 2001. I was mm. in San Diego. I think that's where you are. That's where um, I am right now. And, yeah. And, yeah. Were you on the I service working, or? No, I was actually, uh, I moved to San Diego real briefly, uh, to work for Tony Robbins. I didn't even have oh, a job there, but, um, and I never even visited San Diego. I literally moved there for the intention to get a job there. And I did. And, uh, because I was working for Tony Robbins, I was like a seminar junkie. I would mm-hmm. go to these weekend workshops and these things and the, uh, those little pamphlet newsletters that came out and said, Hey, this weekend at this hotel, there's this conference. And so I went to a conference called international interviewing and interrogation. And I thought that sounds cool. I want to learn whatever that is. <laughs> so I get there and there's 50 police officers in a hotel for the weekend. And, uh, as we're going around introducing ourselves, I realized every one of them, um, is law enforcement and they're all investigators, detectives, whatever. And they're all doing this for continuing education. I'm doing this because I think it's interesting and fun. So they split us into groups and, um, and they do this really cool mock crime where they have a theft and they have three suspects. It's a real theft. And, um, they encourage the people, if you lie and get away with it, you can keep the money you stole, blah, blah, blah. And so, um, as they split us into groups, I'm not even aware what this means. And they're like, who wants to be the group leader? I was like, I'll be the group leader. And so that means you have to go up uh, in front of the whole group and interrogate these suspects in this mock crime. And they're all rating you and how you do. And then mm. by the end of the weekend, uh, I get rated the best interrogator. And I this is my first time ever trying it, no experience. And the, um, the instructors approach me at the end and say, listen, well, we don't disclose this to everyone else, but we work for the CIA where we are polygraph examiners and we do this you know, to help law enforcement, uh, would you ever be interested in moving to DC and, uh, joining the CIA? And this was August of 2001. So I say, right. no, I moved to San Diego to work for Tony Robbins. And then one month later, September 11th happens sure. and it changes the whole world as everyone knows. And so I have one guy's business card. I contact him later in the year and say, is that offer still good? And they said, yep. So move me back. I was originally from here, move me back to the DC area uh, send me to grad school, go through my training there. And so that's how I joined the CIA. And so, you know, I think about, um, polygraph examiners and interrogation, you sort of think about them as being sort of separate things, right? At least as they're portrayed in the movies, because in the movies, you know, interrogators, you know, one-on-one, maybe we're building some trust We're, but you know, maybe we're, you know, good cop, bad cop, da, 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 all this, all the various tropes. But you see the polygraph examiners, and it's always, you know, it's very placid, asking questions. <laughs> I mean, are either of those representative of real life? Um, sort of. So I think um, the biggest misconception people have is that interrogation is this uh, intense thing you see in the movies where people mm. are yelling at each other or, you know, there's something intense going on. Um, right. In reality, uh, so a polygraph examiner would do both. That's so the job is the value of a polygraph examiner is in the interrogation and really it's in the elicitation of information. So uh, you may or may not know this, but a polygraph is inadmissible in court. Right. Um, and so in the CIA, we're dealing with national intelligence stuff. Right. So it's not necessarily, we're not going to court anyway. So um, in either case, the ability to connect with somebody and make them trust you enough through the course of the interview slash polygraph uh, exam test uh, gives you the ability to then go back and influence them later to tell you what they were previously withholding. So it, it, it should be properly done. It should be one and the same. 
a multi-stage yes. effort. Got Correct. It. Yeah. Now, and this another question is purely for <laughs> curiosity's sake. You know, oftentimes in because you talked about you know you're building a connection with this this human being that you're examining, interrogating, is um, is the, oftentimes in the movie the setup is like you know person sitting facing forward in a chair and the polygraph examiner's behind them. Uh, how it seems unrealistic if you're trying to actually build a connection with someone. Very good point. Uh, so when you're physically doing the test, the person is looking straight ahead, usually at a blank wall. So there's no visual distraction. Mm -hmm. That is only during the test. The test may take minutes, call it five minutes, right? So the actual, like I ask you 10 questions and you answer those 10 questions, yes or no. Um, and we're monitoring different physiological responses to those questions. Right. Again, that may be a couple of minutes. Um, but most of the time, if we're there for hours, uh, most of the time is spent two chairs, nothing in between, facing each other with full ability to connect with, you know, nothing in the way. Right. Well, that's interesting because, I mean, again, this, you know, the, the popular media is that these are distinct roles uh, that, you know, we bring in the mousy-looking polygraph examiner that, you know, typically a, a bald guy or something as they show in the movies. But you're saying it's actually both roles. I think that that's interesting. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I actually saw um, my daughter and I watched a show. It's a new Netflix show, something like American Murder or something of that nature. And it was about uh, a real-life murder. Crime. True crime story. Uh, that yeah. happened. Yeah, true crime story. And um, it was really cool. They showed a lot of, I think it was probably all real video uh, from body cam footage of the police and in the interrogation room. And that is the rare situation where I've seen an interrogator uh, who's also the polygraph examiner on the police side who did an excellent job. I'll give, it was a woman, she did amazing, really good job. I mean, always thinks people could improve, um, but it's rare to see uh, police do such a superb job as she did. If you ever check out that show, you'll see a really good way of interrogating somebody, get them to tell you something they previously were withholding. Well, I'm just sort of thinking in the sales context too, is, is that, you know, you sort of attack it multiple ways, which is, you know, a lesson I think that's, that uh, is lost on a lot of sellers is that a, they they assume that when they ask a question of a buyer, that what the buyer is telling them is sort of the God's honest truth. And in my experience, it's been that it, it's not, right? I mean, these are human beings you're talking to. They've got agendas, motivations, whatever. It's it's a shaded, it's shaded somehow in one direction. And so you have to come back and have that subsequent conversation to really find out what the real truth is. Yeah. And I I Ten years ago, uh, I wrote my first book called Is He Lying to You? And in that, this is just for general people knowing if they're being lied to. And I give a bunch of talks where I help people navigate through people trying to sell to them. It, are someone lying? And I always say, do not look for truthful information. You'll find it, right? Because what does the truth look like? Well, it, it can be faked. It can be you know, done in a way that aligns with what you think truth looks like. So we're not supposed to be looking for truthful information. We're supposed to be looking for what appears to be deceptive information, right? Like something that doesn't feel right. A lot of times I tell people to literally trust your gut. So you'll sure. hear something and you'll be like, that just doesn't sound right. That doesn't seem right. Trust that because that's probably a good sign that somebody's misrepresenting something they're telling you. And so that was, 
incorporated into your your training that you received too about trusting your instincts? Um, not necessarily, but the part of not looking for truthful information right. is is taught to us. I mean, we're not sitting there because it's easy. Uh, as humans, we want that, go back to connection. We want to have that connection with someone. So right. it's easy to start to like you and go, Andy, I like you, man. Like I, I want to look for the best in you and I want to believe that you're telling me the truth. So if I'm sitting there looking for it, I'm going to find it. Um, so we are taught oh, yeah. to, <laughs> you're, you're going to find some version you know. of it, right? Exactly. And, yeah, and what yeah. I realize all the time in my own kids, I mean, this literally happened just this past weekend is when my kids lie to me, um, they always include truth in their lie. Oh, absolutely. Right? So yeah. if I ask if I ask a specific question, they're going to tell me um, something, and they know in their mind they're like, "What I just said is true," but oftentimes they don't answer the original question that was asked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think this is. I'm just laughing because this. Is, you know, I have this conversation with sellers all the time. Is is you know they're in such a hurry to get through you know the discovery call. It's like. Yeah, but you know, why did they tell this to you? What do you think their motivation is for for saying this to you? Because it, yeah, it doesn't really align with your your gut instinct. And too often in sales, people don't listen to the gut; they just plow ahead. Because I have to ask these questions to get answers to these questions. And the idea that someone isn't being and it's it's not malicious untruth. It's just yeah, people have their own perspectives, their own biases, their own, you talk about that in your book, that, you know, influence what they say. And Absolutely. if you get, and if you get too hung up as a salesperson, this whole idea of like, well, I've got this connection with this person, I really like them. And then you're listening with this, this uh, just completely sort of unfiltered ear, then yeah, you're really not going to understand exactly what the, you know, the buyer's objectives are, what their challenges are, so on and so forth. And I'll say something. I think we as salespeople set up um, the buyers or the leads, the prospects we have to misrepresent to us by the way we misrepresent to them. Here's simply oh. what I mean. Oh, if yeah, you look at ahead. our marketing, if you look at our advertising, um, it's it seems as if everybody's tried to disguise the fact that they're selling something, right? It's almost a free consultation. Um, it is, we're a consultant of some sort. Right. Uh, we are account representative, you know, we're going to come in and tell you, tell you the three steps to this or the five tips to this. Um, recently I was working with a solar company who was, uh, showed me their, uh, call center script. And I realized they're setting appointments for presentations on solar yet. They never use the word solar once. And so what they're doing is like, they're starting out with this deceptive behavior of like, if we can just hold back and hide the fact we're going to try to sell them something, if we can maybe <laughs> talk around exactly what we're selling, right. then it gives us a better shot at getting the sale. And I always say like, is your goal to obtain or sustain, right? Because my philosophy is you don't want a, a quick sale because a quick sale will have fallout, right? People who will cancel they'll leave you bad reviews. They won't use you again, et cetera. You really want a lifetime value of mm -hmm. a client, which means you didn't just obtain the sale through some covert cool way of uh, getting them to sign on the dotted line, but you actually built a relationship. So I'm a huge advocate of people being very 
direct, obviously honest and straightforward about, listen, you know, like if we meet my intention, I mean, you say it in a nice way, in a better way. Uh, but my intention is to make you an offer, right? To buy whatever it is that I sell. And you're making it clear, like I'm a salesperson. We can use nicer language to represent that. But I think it really starts with us being so straightforward and honest that it frees up the prospect to be straightforward and honest. And then we have this mutually honest relationship. Oh, I agree. I mean, this, this idea about uh, transparency of motivations is so critical to building trust with with a buyer. And and I was just laughing while you're talking because, yeah, I, I, I know I went through this at early stages of my career where you wanted to be called anything but a salesperson on your business card, right? Even mm-hmm. even when you're handing your business card to a prospect, uh, I just remember those you know, early days. I think mine said marketing representative. And I was working for a big company, and that's what they called sales fields, marketing representative. It's like, yeah, it's the furthest thing from the truth. I was just a salesperson. Yeah. And and I think this is this is it should be incorporated into sales training. Is is this idea, and I'm sort of thinking about this now, just having talked to you and having read your book, it's it's like yeah, if you're a salesperson, yeah, think that the buyer's got you hooked up to a polygraph machine and they ask you 10 simple questions yes. or five simple questions. Are you a salesperson? You know, what are you selling? What's the value to me of what you're selling? And I think you have that vision in your head. It's like pretty clarifying for you as an individual. And I'm sure enables the better connection that you would have had otherwise. Absolutely. Totally agree. Yeah. It's so funny how this... Self-deception uh, still is, plays such a large part in the sales game. And I think your point is just so critical is, is, yeah, how do you expect people to give you the truth if the whole pretense under which you're talking to them is not the truth? Yes, agree. All right, so you, you created uh, something called the CIA Top Secret Sales System. So I know it's top secret, but what, what can you tell us about that? I'm happy to reveal as much as we have time for today. <laughs> sure. Um, for it's, it simply is a seven-step process that um, really early on, I'm happy to provide this to people, um, I give a interrogation scenario. And in this interrogation scenario, I talk about how I utilize these same seven steps to get this person to tell me the truth, right? So a sale in polygraph is simply that. It is somebody telling you something. Uh, that they previously were withholding a sale. And obviously sales is to, for them to buy whatever it is you sell. So I, I basically show the parallel between, look, this works for us here in a real life, life and death situation sometimes, a mm. uh, very critical and important thing. And I just apply those exact steps to, this is the approach you should take uh, when you're selling anybody anything. And uh, I'll jump to one step because I think this is probably the most value I could bring to anybody. Uh, and it's step three. Uh, step three of the seven-step process is fortify. And fortify simply, people probably heard the term, but it's to strengthen your position. And go back to what I said earlier about being straightforward and honest about you're a salesperson, you have something to sell. Right. Um, I believe in what I teach, the best way to sell somebody something is to tell them your intention is to sell them something. So the way you fortify in this sales process is simply to part of your, uh, we'll call it scheduling call. It might not be your discovery call exactly, but your, right. uh, you and I are, are 
picking a time that we're going yeah. to meet and that at that meeting, I'm going to present to you whatever it is I sell. Um, I will give you an agenda for what's going to happen at the meeting. So Andy, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do step one through five. Uh, and I'm going to tell you very straightforwardly that once we get to we'll call it step five in this presentation, that I'm going to ask you to buy what I sell. Now I say it a little differently. I might sure. say, I'm going to ask you to take the next step with us, whatever that looks like and whatever you represent. Um, and this, this important part, I'm doing this on a scheduling phone call with you is that what you typically get if you do this proper in the proper order is you're going to object now. So you're going to say, Oh, Dan, I'm not going to be ready. I'm not going to be ready to buy that. Even if you offer it to me Mm -hmm. at that presentation, I'm not going to be ready. And so you're already starting early to reveal objections, which means what can I do? I can address them right now. So you might tell me, Oh, so-and-so has to be there. I would need to get approval from this. Uh, I need to get finances in order. I need to uh, compare you to other vendors of the same product or service. Uh, you're going to start telling me stuff. So that way I can make adjustments right away, right from the beginning. I can start uh, allowing you to take those steps or have already completed those steps. So we can just reschedule the time we meet. So then you can be ready if everything lines up to make that purchasing decision. Um, right. So that's important that I tell you, hey, as part of this presentation, I'm going to ask you to buy what I sell. And then to fortify that even further, um, I think a common objection salespeople get is they the person needs time to review whatever paperwork that you use, if it's a contract or whatever you sure. might use for that next step in the process. So I will include an email to you with the paperwork. Uh, it might be have stuff left off because we need to fill in the details, but I'm going to say, Andy, uh, so I just sent you an email uh, and it includes whatever paperwork I'm going to ask you. If you decide to take that step forward with us, it includes that paperwork. So you have a chance to review it in advance. And if you have any questions about that, please let me know. Um, so, and then further, I give restate in the email, the agenda for what's mm -hmm. going to happen in our presentation, which includes that part where I say, here's the part where I ask if you are ready to buy what I sell. Right. And then uh, I'm going to make sure I have your cell phone number so I can text you. Uh, and then I'm going to text you the day of to confirm one, that we're still on for the meeting. But two, have you had a chance to review the email I sent you, which includes what the paperwork mm -hmm. and, and has the reminder in there that I'm going to try to sell you something. And then when we actually to jump forward to when we're actually doing that physical presentation, I always start with this agenda again. So I'm going to sit there and say, Andy, so to, we can keep this informal, but just so we can make sure we cover everything that, you know, we want to cover today in this presentation, I'm going to go through those same steps with you. And I'm going to get to the part, I'm going to say, Andy, now this is where I'm going to ask you to buy what I sell. I will say it in better words, but or whatever right, the commitment is, right? Exactly. And so, um, if anybody from listening to this took away one thing, I will say add in to part of your sales process the step to fortify or strengthen your position to sell them by being so upfront, number one, that I'm a salesperson. So when I come present whatever I sell, I'm going to ask you to buy it, right? Whatever that is. <laughs> and I'm going to remind you about I'm going to ask you to buy it multiple times. You're going to likely object in some form or fashion. I can address that objection without being in front of you and have spent all this time to find out something I could have found out early on. 
I'm going to remind you about these steps. I'm going to send you the paperwork in advance. I'm going to check with you the day of to make sure we're still on. If you had other meetings, I'm going to verify you had those meetings. All these things, just simply so by the time we get to the step in my sales process, step six, we call agree. Agree simply is what a lot of people call the close. I like to use this fun acronym because it aligns with my process. I say, by the time you get to step six, agree, uh, instead of like we heard ABC always be closing, mm. I say it's CIA. Closing is automatic. Now, how could I be so bold to say closing is automatic? Obviously, it's not for everybody. 100%, you don't close everybody. But it's automatic because if you follow the steps in order, by the time you get to step six, it literally is just an agreement between two people. It's like if sure. – there's an alignment and a connection between you. You're going to just, you're going to be ready to buy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that, yeah, without getting down the rabbit hole on, on closing and so on. But yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's a, it's a result of a process. It's an outcome of a process. It's not part of the process itself, the close. So a couple of things I, I think that that's so important for people listening is that, you know, this transparency about being in sales and what you're there to do is not incompatible with being providing a great service to help the buyer make a good decision. And, and it's when you try to cloak one or two of those uh, that you really run into trouble. For instance, you know, if you tell the customer, hey, really, we're here to serve, we're here to help you make a good decision, here to help you, and then you get to the last day of the month and say, yeah, if we could find a way to get you to sign an order this right today, we'd you know, save you 10, 15%. Well, suddenly you've betrayed the fact that yeah, your motivations really aren't there to help them. It's just to get the order. And and I think there's so much value, as you describe, and sort of laying out. It's okay to be, uh, I think um, Adam Grant talks about this in Give and Take. It's it's okay to be a giver with an agenda. It's okay to, to be there to want to provide a great customer experience during the buying process, but have the agenda that, yeah, you, you want to get an order and to spell that out. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it's it seems so hard for people. <laughs> it shouldn't be that hard. And something else you brought up earlier too, which I just want to reiterate, is that that uh, I forget exactly how you you phrased it, but yeah, it's really an important step in the selling process and the buyer's journey. Actually, when they they provide you some information that's not I don't call it proprietary, but it's it's. You know, it's closely held. It's internal. It's it's something that's really relevant to what you're doing, and they just don't tell it to everybody. And and that really becomes a really important event. That's the you know, part of the reason you have to be so uh, astute in the way you ask your questions and so on. But that then becomes, uh, you know, I call a signal moment in the whole the whole affair. Absolutely. You brought up something earlier. I just want to bring it back around, which was you were asking me about in polygraph you commonly see the polygrapher sitting behind or to the side of the subject, we call it, um, yeah. who's actually, you know, taking the test. Um, and I explained that that's only for the portion where we're, you know, monitoring physiology and the rest of it, we're sitting in a different position. So this is what I teach in, in the sales system. And also what I teach in the, in the book that's coming out, which is how to set up the room. And yeah, so I wanted um, to ask about that. That's, but go ahead. Sorry. No, that's perfect. Um, so step four in my process is connect. And obviously everyone knows this from any sales process or system, which is like connect, build rapport. Um, so I think that a big 
portion of connection with anybody is through the use of your body, through physiology. And so um, I know most people think connection or rapport building is magic words. And I know the old cliche way of doing that was to find commonality, right? So we sit there and we talk about things that are similar and they were like, oh, we connect because we both like football or this certain team, et cetera. Um, I actually think, and I learned a lot of this from Tony Robbins, he always says emotion is created through motion or the way we use our body. So if you see, my wife's a kindergarten teacher. If mm-hmm. I walked into a kindergarten class and I just asked the kids, I said, I won't say anything to you. I'm just going to show you things uh, and you're going to tell me how I'm feeling. And I obviously slouched over and frowned. They'd say, oh, you're sad. And I'd be like, yeah, I didn't say a word, but they knew I was sad. And then I like, you know, stood up and put my arms up in the air and smiled happily. They say, you're happy or excited. I'd be like, yeah, it's amazing. How do you know that? It's it's really, there's a brain-body connection, how much you believe in that. I believe in it fully, that our emotions are controlled by uh, how we use our body. So everybody tells you in sales, but we're not utilizing it enough, that we say people buy for emotion and justify with logic. Mm-hmm. And so the goal of any salesperson is to get somebody into an emotional position where they're ready to buy. Well, how do you possibly do that? One is to have awareness of the fact that their body position, the way they're sitting, standing, moving, talking, gesturing, breathing, all of these things are going to impact their emotions. So uh, the first step or step four in the process is connect. Step five to jump forward is influence. But you mm-hmm. can't influence somebody unless you first connected with them. Right. And a lot of people disregard what I'm about to say because they'll say, oh, that's been taught for 40, 50 years. And that's not necessarily true. I'm telling you it is true, which is uh, a great way to connect with anybody is to, one, be have access to see their entire body, which means don't put a barrier between you. So don't sit at the kitchen table if you're in a house. Don't sit at a boardroom table. Don't sit behind a desk if you're in an office. Don't do any of these things that puts a barrier between you and the person. To fully connect with them, you have to have access to see their entire person, and they have to have access to see your entire person. So the you set up the room, whether, again, it's in an office. You set up an office where it's two chairs, comfortable chairs, hopefully, that are just facing each other with no one else in the room, just one-on-one. Obviously, in home sales where a lot of people deal with, there's a spouse, so that's okay, like, the husband and wife, and then the um, the salesperson, that's fine. But ideally, it's the buyer and the seller, uh, two people facing in comfortable chairs directly. I can see the whole person. They can see my whole person. And to connect best with them now, I can watch what it is they do with their body because that represents the emotion or mood that they're in. And then I can mirror that. Now, mirroring that People always think it'll be obvious or people think they're copying them. They will not. If they sit with their legs crossed, sit with your legs crossed. If they sit back in their chair, sit back in your chair. If they lean forward as they talk to you, lean forward as they talk to you. If they gesture a lot with their hands, gesture with your hands. Just do what they do. Now, why does this matter? Because this is subconscious, but subconsciously, humans will feel the connection. They'll feel like, again, it's not conscious. They're not thinking, oh, they're like me, but... Because emotion is created through emotion or the use of our body, if you're doing the same thing they're doing, there's it's almost like a tuning fork. There's an alignment of emotions. We both kind of feel the same way because we're using our bodies the same way. Mm. Then as you jump forward to 
the next step is in step five influence, you actually will start pacing and leading them. So you, you'll break the connection. So you made a connection through the use of your body, which is the number one driver of emotion. Then as you break that connection, you actually cause a disconnect. So meaning if, if the whole time we're kind of leaning forward a little bit, talking to each other, and then I suddenly leaned back in my chair, subconsciously, you'll feel the disconnect I just created, but it's a purposeful disconnect. It, your brain subconsciously goes, oh, I don't like that. I don't like that. feels weird to me that why did he just do that? And so if we had a true connection, you will actually start to follow me. So you want that connection back you would start to then lean back in your chair and then it feels better. Like, oh, that feels better to me. Like almost like I got the connection back and it doesn't always work. So there's a process you go through to, to, you know, get that connection back. But the moment you went from following them in the way that they're using their body to them following you, you now are the leader. So that means you can now influence them. So again, we influence first with body because emotion is created through emotion of the way we use our body, sure. then we can influence with words and we can influence with the rest of the tool set that we have available to in our presentation and what we sell. But I think well, that's often disregarded. People go, that's oh, it's old school. That's cliche. That doesn't work. I'm telling you, it works and it matters. <laughs> well, okay. So let's put all that in the context of a Zoom call. Okay. Do you want me to tell you yeah, how I mean, you just because it's, yeah, in or, or, or in a phone call? I mean, so, I mean, I, it's not that I, yeah, you you referred to sort of the old fashioned cliche about connecting on common ground, which actually I think is I don't think is old school at all. In fact, I think it's not practiced nearly enough. Is is finding common ground? There's uh, Jonah Berger in his recent book, The Catalyst, uh, talks about this as a way to to get conversations going as finding perhaps in unexpected ways common ground, but. I'm not dismissing the emotion part because emotion obviously is, is critical in, in influence and so on. But but you just described a scenario which is relying on face-to-face in person. So here we are in this world, uh, even if it's in-home sales, those aren't happening quite as much, obviously. So what do you do as a seller when you're, let's start first virtual, let's say on a Zoom call, second on a phone call? So... I'll go back to what's ideal and then what's what ends up happening. So ideally, it's just one-on-one. So it's you and I, Andy. We are we're on a Zoom call. We see each other. Um, we maybe can't see the whole person. The neck, the neck up, though. Typically. Exactly. Yeah, we can't see the whole person. So we're at, we're at a disadvantage. But if I could ideally set it up, and again, this is less than ideal, I'd at least hopefully see waist up, right, or, or chest up. So there's more. I can see your arms. If I can see your arms... It's a little bit of an advantage. I can see how you gesture, move, et cetera. I can kind of tell how you're sitting. But I can also frame, I can frame the image. So like if I look at you and you're close to your camera, I can get a little closer to my camera. If you're sitting back and you're kind of, you know, I mean, like taking up one third of whatever, I yeah. can try to position myself. And it seems like, why would that matter? That's a little bit of way of mirroring the position of the camera. So that's that's one style. Here's reality though. Um, a lot of people are not on video. And so you're just on audio, whether it be a phone call. Sometimes you're with groups of people. Um, sure. I was just doing yeah. a consulting for a business the other day, and there were 80 people on a Zoom session, and none of them were on camera. So it was me trying. I, I'm totally guessing, right? I have no idea how they're responding, what they look like, if they're sleeping. I have no idea what's going on. Um, so that's the disadvantage we have. Uh, so I'll go back. Ideally, it's one person. Ideally, it's on camera. If it's not on camera, it's on voice then I have to think of you 
as the one person, even if there are thousands of people listening after the fact. And now I just have to mirror voice so I can do volume. Volume's a little difficult because it's digital, but meaning if mm-hmm. you're a loud talker, I'll speak a little louder. If you're soft, I'll speak a little softer, fast, faster, slow, slower. And the one thing to, for people to be aware of is a slow talker will be overwhelmed by a fast talker. And it's also has all the cliches like fast talking, slick salesperson, et cetera. So especially if you're talking to a slow talker, just slow your voice down, speak slower, more deliberate. <laughs> Sounds like the Seinfeld episode, a low talker. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the best you can do with the digital world of that we're dealing with now with COVID is if you're on zoom, hopefully it's just you and the one person, hopefully you can see a little bit more than just, you know, neck up. If you can see their arms and head, you can position your camera similarly to theirs, you in frame, just like them. Um, you can definitely mirror, uh, voice tone and volume and speed. And again, if they're slow, please speak slower. Uh, and then if there's a group of people, pick one, pick the person who you think is the leader or the influencer of that group and mm-hmm, mirror mm-hmm. them. And because you can't obviously mirror everybody. So pick the one person you think is going to influence the rest and do things like them. Cause to them, the association they have is if they look up to that person and they see similarity between you and that person, they kind of pass on to you the same credibility or influence factor that they have with them. They pass on to you. Right. Well, but I think, let me just ask a question because of course we're getting close short on time, but is, I mean, you can manage on zoom how you present yourself and it may not be mirrored, but to the point about emotion is, yeah, I was talking to someone uh, last week who saying, look, every time he's on camera now, zoom, you see full body. He stands, he doesn't sit, stands, he's got it framed, the picture uh, in such a way that, yeah, you see him standing and presenting and moving and so on. What are your thoughts about that? If you can only control one aspect of it, let's say you're talking to you know, a group where yeah, everybody's on audio, but you're, they can see you, standing versus sitting. Uh, so absolutely. I think that um, especially in this situation, if you are taught as part of your sales process, like if you were in a home or in a boardroom or wherever you are, and, and your ideal way of presenting is with, uh, with you standing up, and presenting using your whole body, then then try to do the same thing on Zoom. Um, and same thing with visuals. Uh, the visuals that are behind you, the lighting that you have, how the quality of your audio, all of those things, people would say, ah, does it really matter? It, it does matter how mm-hmm. much it's impossible to quantify, but it all matters, right? So have, have great audio, have great lighting, have a really interesting or good background. If you're going to have visuals, make sure they're quality visuals. But might as well utilize everything you could have done if you were sitting in a boardroom or at an office or in somebody's home presenting. Try to utilize the exact same benefit in this digital world. I agree. Well, good. Well, um, <laughs> Dan, unfortunately, we didn't get to your book, but uh, we'll have to do this again and, and talk about that. Um, so for people who want to connect with you and learn about what you're doing, how, what's the best way to do that? Uh, I have a personal website, dancrum.com, D-A-N-C-R-U-M.com. Um, everything related to the book and the sales system is ciamethod.com. So um, you can check that out. The book, Yeah, and just let people know the book is about hiring, recruiting, and retaining employees. And uh, yeah, you said it's coming out when? Uh, actually, I just was talking to my publisher today. It's coming out on election day, November 3rd. Uh, <laughs> it got pushed back because of COVID. 
Um, I don't know if the timing is the greatest, but, um, and also everything going on with unemployment, but at the same time, uh, yes, that book is on using the same things that we did in the CIA for recruiting and hiring talent that you could utilize if you're in a position to hire anybody. Very cool. All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Dan Crum, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.